We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and the 11th chapter, the book of Romans and the 11th chapter. And I will be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 33 through 36, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy today, for your kindness in bringing us together. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would guide us as we look at this passage of Scripture, and that he would help us to not only understand it, but to apply it in such a way that Jesus Christ is honored and glorified and we benefit spiritually and this church is strengthened by what we consider today. For we ask these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Brethren, we come this morning to the conclusion of Romans chapter 11 and to what has been described as a closing doxology of praise. A closing doxology of praise. For here in verses 33 through 36, Paul expresses with a sense of awe and great enthusiasm his wonder and admiration for God's wisdom and God's ways. For as one commentator has identified the focus of this final doxology, Paul is praising here with the highest form of praise that he is capable of giving the incomprehensibility of God's counsel. For as Paul considered the wisdom by which God decreed and designed all things, and the ways that God has flawlessly executed his great redemptive purposes among men, Paul could not help but to acknowledge the superiority and the matchlessness of it all. Furthermore, as Paul considered the great limitations that he possessed, that we possess, when it comes to comprehending God's wisdom and ways and our inability to know his mind or to act in any way as his counselor or advisor, Paul was compelled to confess that God's wisdom and God's ways are not only incomprehensible, not only beyond us, not only unfathomable, but they are the reasons he is above all things. And he is worthy of glory forever. And so as we come to this closing doxology of praise, we are invited to join Paul in acknowledging what is great and incomprehensible about God, to join Paul in confessing how truly unlearned and unqualified we are to question or to pass judgment on his ways 
and to join Paul in recognizing that God is so wise, so righteous in his judgments that all things flow from and through and to him as the one who is worthy of all glory. Let us start with Paul here in verse 33 in acknowledging what is so great and incomprehensible about God, and especially with respect to his redemptive dealings with mankind. For that has been the focus here in Romans 11, his redemptive dealings with mankind. For Paul begins this concluding doxology of praise with these words, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And of course, in saying these things about God, Paul is not only affirming their truthfulness, but he is also urging us to humbly ponder their significance and their implications for what Paul is declaring about God in this doxology of praise is not only to be accepted by us as established orthodox truth about God but it is also to be celebrated to be celebrated by those who claim to delight and to depend upon God for the purpose of a doxology of praise is not merely to educate us about God but to lead us in worship and in celebration to God. And what Paul is urging us to accept and to celebrate about God here in verse 33 is very important. For he is urging us to accept two truths and to celebrate the depth of both of them. For Paul's first words here in verse 33 are the expression, Oh, the depth of... Paul wants his readers and us to understand these truths are not merely true of God in a cursory or in a general or in a simple sense, but they are deeply embedded, if I may use that term, in who God is. These truths abide or reside in God deeply as one who possesses these truths perfectly and endlessly. And the first truth that Paul focuses on is the depth of God's riches. The depth of God's riches. Or we could call this the, the spiritual wealth that God possesses and abundantly dispenses on the behalf of his redeemed people. In fact, the dominant thought here in this context is that our salvation is an expression of God's riches and that we are enriched by his giving of it. And whether we took notice of it or not, Paul has already spoken repeatedly about the wealth of God's riches towards us throughout the book of Romans. In fact, let me just give you some examples. I'm just going to quote some examples here very quickly. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these references to God's riches being dispensed to us. For example, in Romans chapter 2, in verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you 
to repentance. Then Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9 in verses 22 and 23 of the riches of his glory towards those he chooses to save. For Paul wrote, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known, notice that, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That's us. Vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, unquote. For God's choice of his own people is a clear expression of his great riches. Then lastly, in Romans chapter 10 and verses 12 and 13, which is where we were not long ago, Paul spoke again of God's riches as expressed in his saving purposes towards his people. For Paul wrote, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So as Paul's grateful heart overflows in this doxology of praise we're examining here, he acknowledges the great depth of God's riches towards us. God's riches have been demonstrated over and over and over again through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul urges us to, to acknowledge this. He urges us to celebrate this through praise. Then secondly, let us notice here in Romans 11.33 that Paul praises the depths of God's wisdom and God's knowledge. The depths of God's wisdom and God's knowledge. And both of these attributes together, as they pertain to God's purposes in saving his people, are often referred to as God's counsel or God's eternal counsel or God's redemptive counsel. For in planning and executing our salvation, God's great wisdom and knowledge were graciously placed upon display. And as we consider them as creatures with limited finite minds and comprehension, we must confess that they are not only deep but they are also very high. They are beyond our capacity to grasp fully. In fact, we are humbled by them. There is a sense in which we see them in a truly profound way as well through the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. We see the wisdom and knowledge of God in Christ and his cross. For in the revealing of Jesus Christ, we see the wisdom and knowledge of God personified in human flesh. For through Christ, we see the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge displayed in a way that nothing else can, in a way that was once unknown, but has now been known and made revealed through the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 
2 and 3, Paul prayed that the saints at Colossae might enjoy all the riches of a full assurance of understanding regarding the knowledge of God's mercy, which Paul identifies as Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden, in Christ are hidden, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For when we see Christ in the scriptures, we see the glory of the one who embodies wisdom. We see the glory of the one who embodies the knowledge of God. Furthermore, as I stated earlier, we see the wisdom and the knowledge of God displayed in Christ's work on the cross. In fact, I would argue especially in Christ's work on the cross. For Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 7 through 10 these words, In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches, there's that word again, the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, how? In all wisdom, in all insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His promise, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, unquote. Therefore, if we desire to see, if we desire to consider this morning the ultimate manifestation of how God works and how God is wise and insightful, then we need not look any further than Christ's cross. When we look at the cross of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross in promoting the riches of God's grace and securing our redemption and righteousness, we must confess how deep, how truly deep and how truly high and how truly lofty the wisdom and knowledge of God truly is. For think with me, who in wisdom could devise such a plan? Who in knowledge could execute a way for unworthy sinners to be reconciled to God and to be accepted as righteous in Jesus Christ apart from God's wisdom. No one could, but God did. And he did so in a very plain way. He did so in plain view. His way was not hidden so that when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we have no questions as to who is most wise. We know. We have no lingering doubts as to who possesses all knowledge. We know. When we see Christ hanging there on the cross, it is obvious in a way that answers all of our questions and dispels all of our doubts that God is wise and all-knowing. Oh, brethren, let us acknowledge this morning the, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Let us celebrate through doxology and praise how his wisdom and knowledge are displayed in Christ and in the cross. Let us stand in awe that you and I, who once despised the cross, now love the cross. We are drawn to it. We have been given a saving interest in it. Who would have known that we would? God did. And he not only knew it, but he also decreed it to be so. Then secondly, in addition to praising the depths 
of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul also praises here in the rest of verse 33, the unsearchableness of God's judgments and the inscrutability of his ways. And no doubt Paul mentions these two outworkings of God's redemptive counsel because they emphasize how different and how superior God's ways are from our ways. How superior God's ways are to our ways. For our judgments, our ways are limited by our own creatureliness and by the influence of our own remaining sin. For example, our judgments are often biased by our sinfulness. And in many cases, we judge incorrectly. We, we judge selfishly. And yet, God's judgments are perfect because they are based upon His moral perfections and the endless extent of His knowledge and His wisdom. And therefore, when God judges, He does so with perfect righteousness. He does so with perfect fairness and perfect equity. This is especially true in matters of redemption or in matters of salvation. For when God chooses to save or not to save, He does so out of a wealth of wisdom and knowledge that is known only to Him and that is unsearchable for us. In fact, we are not only incapable of searching out the judgment of God or the reasons why he does what he does, but we display arrogance when we attempt to do so. For our role, our rightful place under God is not to pass judgment upon him and his ways, but our place, brethren, is to simply trust in him. For there is wisdom for us in knowing that his ways, God's ways, are not our ways, and his judgments are wiser than ours. In fact, to assume that we are wise enough to evaluate God, to assume that we are wise enough to pass judgment on his ways, is to place far too much confidence in ourselves, to place far too much confidence in our own judgment, and it can only lead to pride and to the need to be humbled. And this same principle applies to the inscrutability of God's ways as well, for God's ways are not subject to our scrutiny, nor are we qualified to scrutinize them. But rather, God's ways are good. God's ways are wise. God's ways give us guidance. And therefore, rather than questioning God's ways, rather than trying to second-guess the reason behind them, let us rest in the perfection and the inscrutability of God's ways. Let us set them before us as they are revealed in Holy Scripture, and let us learn to walk in them. For in walking in the ways of God, there is wisdom to be found for us. There is spiritual peace and safety to be found on the paths that he has appointed for us as his people and as pilgrims to travel upon for they are sure ways. God's ways are certain and reliable ways. They do not mislead. And then, beloved, not only does Paul offer these words of praise for God's riches, wisdom, knowledge, judgment, and ways, but he also poses some questions here. Notice these questions 
in verses 34 and 35 of this doxology. And these questions stress how absurd, how ludicrous it is for men to act towards God in ways that simply ignore how wise and self-sufficient he truly is. For Paul asks here, citing from Isaiah 40 and verse 13 and Job 35 and verse 7, these questions, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And needless to say, these are rhetorical questions, and the answers are already implied within them. But we need to consider each one of them briefly. First, Paul asks the question, which one might argue is actually two questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? And in asking this question, Paul is likely drawing from Isaiah 40, where Isaiah has been declaring the, the superiority of God over all false gods and the sovereignty of God over all of his people in particular. And Isaiah's point, which Paul is implying here, is that no one can know God's mind. That at no time has God ever needed the counsel or the advice of another. In fact, the context suggests that it would be absurd. It would be dishonoring to God to suggest that someone could know his mind or qualify to be his advisor. And no doubt Paul is incorporating this question here in this doxology of praise in Romans chapter 11 for the same reason and for the same effect. And that is to emphasize also just how absurd it is to suggest that in the unfolding of God's own redemptive purposes, God would not know the counsel of his own mind or that he would be in need of someone to assist him or to counsel him at all. Because to suggest that someone or something else is in greater control than God is, or that God is so limited in his wisdom and abilities that he needs an advisor or a counselor or the cooperation of another is to undermine God and his sovereignty. And if God has any purpose in these words, if Paul has any purpose in recording these words here in this doxology, it is to raise up and not to diminish our view of God and his perfections. Of course, the same is true with the next question from Paul here in verse 35. Notice Romans 11:35. For drawing from Job 35 in verse 7, Paul asks the question, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? An interesting question. Who has given a gift to him that he might be Repaid. And in asking this second question, Paul is attempting to establish, just as Job did back in the Old Testament, the fact that God is not dependent. God is not indebted to anyone for anything that they have done or even that he has done. And this is especially the case with respect to salvation. For in saving his elect, God does the giving. 
God does the giving. Salvation is a gracious gift from God to those whom he has chosen to receive it. No man, no woman contributes anything to their salvation that obligates God to act for their sake. In fact, even the faith by which we as sinners respond to God once he has regenerated us by his spirit, is a gift from God to us and not the other way around. Our faith is not a gift to God that he is indebted to respond to. But even our faith is his gift to us. Therefore, Paul's purpose in asking these questions here in, in verses 34 and 35 of Romans 11 is to highlight the fact that what we know about God, we know not only because he has been pleased to reveal it, but because he desires for us to know it, that we might praise him and serve him gratefully. And what we possess in terms of redemption and forgiveness of sins, we have because God has graciously given it to him. In both cases, God has acted as his own counselor. God did nothing that obligates us to repay him. He has given graciously and we have contributed nothing. He is not in need of something we must give in return. And so what should we recognize? What should we acknowledge? What should we praise about God based on what, on what Paul has said here in Romans chapter 11? Well, Paul ends this doxology of praise here in verse 36. Notice verse 36 by making three important theological affirmations. And we should know each of these affirmations very well. They look like they're very simple but they're very profound, and we should know them very well. First, Paul affirms the fact that all things are from God. All things are from God. Paul begins his affirmations here in the beginning of verse 36 with the words, for from him. And this word from points to God as the source to God as the initiator of all things that relate to redemption and the salvation of his people. And of course, we have observed this not only in Paul's arguments in Romans chapter 11, but all throughout his arguments throughout the book of Romans, as God is presented as one who decrees who will be saved, and he preserves them for the purposes that he has for them. Needless to say, it is essential that we keep this first theological affirmation from Romans 11.26 in mind as we seek to interpret Scripture. For the starting place of all theological truth is God. Everything starts with Him. Everything begins with Him. Everything is from Him. Nothing is true without Him. Then secondly, Paul affirms here in verse 36 of Romans chapter 11 that all things are through God. Notice, from God, through God. Meaning that God is the means, God is the conduit, God is the channel through which all blessings flow to his people. And of course, this is especially true again with respect to the person and the work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through his person, Christ's person, that we see the image of the invisible God, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. It is through his work on the cross, it is through his resurrection that we are redeemed, that we are justified. It is through his work as our mediator that we are interceded for and preserved until that great day of redemption. Truly, it is through Christ that we receive all spiritual blessings. Then thirdly, Paul affirms here by way of theological affirmation that all things are to him, from him, through him, to him. And by this we mean that all things point to him. They point to him. They find their fullest meaning in him. He is the target. He is the end. He is that which brings all things their meaning and significance. It is to him that we offer our praise, our worship, and our service. And therefore, because all things are from him and through him and to him, we are assured that what we do offer in terms of our submission and service to him are received in the way that he would have them to be received and that they serve the purpose of glorifying him forever. For Paul ends this doxology of praise here in verse 36 with these words. Notice these last words, to him be glory forever. And of course, this is consistent, brethren, with the purpose for which God himself is at work. For what is God doing now? What is God currently at work at? He's working at bringing glory to himself. This brings us in line with God's own purposes. And therefore, Paul's end to this 11th chapter focuses on what is most important. What is most important of all, and that is giving the glory where the glory is due. Giving the glory where the glory is due. And may we, you and I, as his people today, excel in doing just that. And recognizing who he is, what he deserves, and giving him that which he commands for his own glory. May God enable us to do so today. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and your love. We thank you for this book of Romans and this 11th chapter, which we have been spending time in over the weeks. We thank you so much for what we have learned from it and what we now see in terms of these theological affirmations. And we would ask for your mercy and grace to embrace them, to receive them, to apply them in a way that only you can enable us to do. Help us to see that all things are from you, that all things are through you, and that all things are to you. And may you be honored and glorified in all that we do. Help us, draw us near to you. Draw us near to Christ, draw us near to the cross where the wisdom and knowledge of God is fully displayed and help us to trust in those things which are far higher and far deeper and far grander than we ever imagined, but so absolutely needful for us. 
So bless us as your people. Give us grace. Strengthen us. Grow us in our knowledge of Christ and of your will. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.